You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Thank you, thank you. Good afternoon. It is uh, an absolute joy to be back with you at CLM Coventry. I absolutely love coming here. And uh, in my drive up from uh, sunny Gloucester, um, I just came with a, a real sense of anticipation. I love being here. It does feel a little bit like being at home. And so that's the greatest compliment I can pay to you. I feel totally at ease and uh, totally relaxed among you and getting to know you. So thank you so much. Thank you again. Uh, to Martin and Esther and the team for the trust and for uh, welcoming me in and, and letting me be a part of your journey. It really is, a one, uh, is wonderful. And I'd just like to especially give a huge um, vote of appreciation for the worship team this morning. Both services, they have been absolutely outstanding in leading us in great worship. Don't you agree? Come on, if you do agree, give them a round of applause. I, I thought they did better than that, but there we are. Um, they, they really, I, I get to travel all around the country. I'm very blessed to get to do what I do. And I want to tell you what you've got here is really wonderful. And you've got great musicians. People got a great heart for worship. And what I love about CLM is there's such a strong commitment to both worship and word. And those two things are dynamic platforms for change. Uh, and transformation. So it's a great joy uh, to be with you. Since the last time being with you, I turned 51. I know I don't look a day over, don't I? That's, uh, no, but stop, stop, stop. And, uh, I, and also my, my youngest daughter has joined the workforce, which is marvelous. So my 16-year-old, we pushed her out to work. And uh, someone's got to work. And so she's, she's now a, a member of the workforce, works for Toys R Us. Got a season, got, come on, got a seasonal job. So if you need some discount on Toys R Us, just mention her name and, uh, and you'll be fine uh, with that. So that's, that's wonderful. And uh, I bring greetings from One Church as well, One Church Gloucester. They refer to me uh, affectionately as One Church on the Road. Um, so I'm, I'm bringing greetings from there from a great church down in, uh, in Gloucester with many different expressions. And as Esther said earlier on, the Lord is doing something and he is moving and there is real excitement, and churches are growing, and there is a sense that God is on the move. So it's, these are exciting days to be alive, isn't it? And uh, we thank God for that. So it is my absolute joy. Can you put my first slide up for me? Marvelous. Okay, it's my absolute joy to share the Word of God with you today. And I'm going to be speaking on the theme that ownership changes everything. Ownership changes everything. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 23, just a really short reading. But if you've got a Bible with you, still have a look at it with me and follow it. The context, 2 Samuel 23, is that uh, David is listing uh, his mighty men, a group of people that he's forged and shaped into an, an incredible elite fighting force. Uh, they started off as, as discontent and in debt and scattered, and David, under his leadership, brings this amazing group of people together. And uh, about 37 are listed as being referred to as mighty men. So it's like an inner circle within that group. And then within that inner circle, there is uh, three in particular, three mighty men. And this passage is really talking a little bit about them. We're just going to touch on one of them and make reference to uh, an incredible exploit that uh, this man did. So verse 11 of 2 Samuel 23, and it says this, next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Hararite, when the Philistines banded together at a place uh, where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. I love that. Such a simple little story. Easy to miss, but absolutely powerful. And I love this phrase that it says of this man. But Shammah took his stand. I like that. In the middle of the field. Now, at this stage, we don't even know if this field belonged to him. It's not clear. Uh, I suppose you could say as an Israelite, covenantally, it was his field and that he was fighting for the land that God had given his people. So in the broadest sense, we might say that he owned this land. But at a technical level, we're not told 
that he's fighting for his own piece of land. But if you and I went back in a time machine and watched this battle scene, it would look like we were watching a man defending something he owned. He took his stand in the middle of the field. When everyone else ran for it, he took his stand. I love that. There's something that attracted me to that statement, that what made this man stand when everyone ran? Do you know, as a leader, you're interested in stuff like that, as a human. But, but also, this, this sense that when he took his stand, he fought for something. He believed in something so powerfully that he's prepared to fight for it and potentially, theoretically at least, although he doesn't, he's prepared to die for it. I, I don't know what your field is. Everyone's field will look a little bit different. Your life will look a little bit different from the person beside you or the people around you. But I'll tell you this, which one common fact that will join us all together, if we don't own the field that we're in, then we will, as it were, lose the opportunity of increase, expansion, and even victory and blessing in our lives. It's, it's ownership that makes the difference. Ownership changes everything. And actually, when you and I take ownership of the field we're in, it gives, can I say this reverently, it gives God permission to come into that stand we're taking and do something amazing for us. We'll, we'll return to that idea at the end. But God steps in supernaturally for Shema because Shema took his stand. Sometimes we want God to do the supernatural bit without taking the stand, right? That's a bit of a human thing. We expect God to do everything for us. And of course, he is God. He can do that. He can do anything and everything. But actually, there are moments, and the Bible is, is filled with these moments, where because of a stand I take or a step that a man or a woman took, it gave God the opportunity to do something in them, for them, and through them. And although this happened thousands of years ago, the principles of this idea are still absolutely relevant to me and you. Your field, well, first of all, your field is your life. You've got to take ownership of your life. Uh, to actually take ownership of the most precious commodity God has given you. That, that we make a decision, I'm going to fight for the God-given life within me. I'm going to take a stand for all the good that God wants to do in and through my life. We, we've got to do that. Because if you don't fight for you, well, you know, other people aren't likely to. Some might, but most won't. Actually, that field may be your family, if that's relevant to you. To fight for your wife. To fight for your kids. Even when they disappoint you, even when it's not working out the way you hoped it would, you fight for them. We, when we're tempted to run, we stand. I'd be really honest with you as a dad, as a husband, there have been moments when I've been tempted to run. And that's the truth. I don't mean I don't love my family. I do. Absolutely, totally. I would die for my family. But there have been moments of darkness, moments of pressure, moments of pain where I could have done a runner. I mean, I'm being honest. If someone had offered me, you know, one-way ticket to Mars, I'd have jumped on that shuttle. That's just being, being honest with you. Some of you are in jobs you hate. Some of you are doing the job of your dreams. Whatever your job is, if that's relevant to you, that's your field. And God wants you to own that field. So you could be in the job of your dreams, and it's no problem getting up in the morning and going to work. Some of you, and the probability of the size of this crowd means it's, it's likely there's a few of you are in a job from hell. You're not enjoying it very much. It's not what you want to do for the rest of your life. But here's the thing. It's your field at the moment. And so as a follower of Jesus, we're called to go to work tomorrow or today and serve that field like it was our business. Wow. A tough idea, but it's a strongly biblical idea. And of course, let's bring it right down to CLM. If you're a, a partner of the CLM journey, then this is your field. It's not their church, it's our church. Come on. Now, if you're visiting us from another place or, or maybe you, you've just stumbled into church today, we welcome you. But, but actually, for those of you that have locked down here, this is your field. And so, so we come to a place and we say, Lord, what can I do 
that shows my ownership of this field? What can I do that shows my investment into this field? What can I do to make this field the best field it can possibly be? Come on. See, that's a mentality that straddles everything in our life. It's not just a spiritual idea. It's a, it's a material idea. It's a physical idea. It's a social idea. Wherever individuals own something, they transform something. So if you own your community, it'll transform. If you own your job, it'll transform. If you own your family, it'll transform. Now, I'm not saying it's all going to happen in five minutes, but it will bring a transformation because you've taken a stand of ownership in in the midst of that. Does that make sense? Now, in my journey as a human being and in 30 years of Christian ministry, I've come across reoccurring attitudes that I've seen over and over again. So, so please don't be offended by these. These are my observations. Feel free to disagree. Put them in the shredder, whatever you want. But, but these, are, these are my observations of attitudes that people have towards either the local church that we're a part of or life in general. Here's the first one, and it's a dangerous one. It's the attitude of squatter. Now, squatter, the word squatter strikes fear into the heart of every homeowner in the building. You go on holiday and you come back from your two weeks in Tenerife to find someone's moved into your home. They're eating all the food out of your fridge. They are watching football on your 60-inch TV and they are sucking your Wi-Fi. And it's all going on uh, right in front of your eyes. It's, it's a homeowner's nightmare. It has happened to people over the years. Uh, and it's a terrible thing. Someone moves into your home that they do not own. And what do they do? They take, 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 take. They're not, they don't care who you are. They don't care what this is going to do to you. They just want what you got. That's a squatter. And over the years of Christian ministry, I have met too many of them. Too many people with a squatter mentality. They, they, they come and they take. Right. Now listen, listen to be carefully. If you're a visitor here and you're seeking to find Jesus, you are in the right place because there's a God in heaven who is generous and kind and loving and faithful and he will bless you even before you give anything to him. He is just absolutely committed to you. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we are expected to move from getting something (laughs) to giving something. We're expected to make that journey. You know, like I'm a a father of three kids. You know, when they were really young, it was all give me, give me, give me. Now that's okay when they're five and they're six and they're seven and they're eight. When they're 16, 20, and 24, we got to change that narrative. And yet I meet a lot of Adults sound like kids. Give me, give me, give me. Now listen, God wants to give to you, so don't hear what I'm not saying. He wants to bless you. We believe that in this church, but he wants to grow you as well. And growth is about moving beyond squatter, give me, give me, give me, give me, to what can I give? What can I give? See, squatters don't change the world, they wreck it. And, and if we want to change the world, we've got to move from, God, will you give me more? To, my goodness, look how blessed I am. Let me give something back. Let me bless my world. Come on. Come on, are you with me? Come on. Now, now that's the first mentality I've seen over and over and over again. The second mentality is this. It's the mentality of the renter. Now, I'm a renter at this moment. I'm renting a house in Gloucester. So I'm not making any social comment here. I'm talking about an attitude, Okay. So if you're a renter in the room, please don't be uncomfortable. I'm talking about the mentality of rent. You see, I'm in a weird position. I'm a renter and I'm a landlord at the same time. So I currently rent out a a home that I have uh, and I'm currently renting another house. So it's a bit of a weird position. It's just just the uniqueness of my journey at the moment. So I'm both tenant and landlord. Okay? Now my landlord is really happy that I'm his tenant. Because we don't live as renters, we live as owners. In the house that we're in, we've already made improvements to it. It's not even our house. We haven't asked for discount on the rent. We've just improved it. Why? Because that's our mentality. Now, uh, the house that I own, I'm hoping that the renter thinks like an owner. 
Now, contractually, the renter only has to pay their rent and usually contractually to leave the house in the condition they found it in. And we've got pictures for evidence. All right, so that's what you're hoping, right? So they don't have to build an extension for you, but you are hoping they're going to do that. Now, that's their contractual obligation. But what I'm hoping for in my little house that I've rented out is that I get a mentality of an owner in a renting situation. I don't just want them to pay their rent, although that's good, I'll take that. But I want them to see this house as if they owned it because they'll treat it differently if they think like an owner. Now, can I just say this genuinely directly? If you're renting a house, treat that house like you own it, and then God might give you one of your own. If you try somebody else's house, why should God give you one? Now, I didn't say that in the first service, but I feel to say it now. Is that okay? As a Christian, even if you're renting, own. Come on. See, that's a mentality shift. That's a completely different mentality. And that idea changes the world. And of course, here's the third attitude. It's obviously the one I'm getting to. It's the owner. Over the years, local church, community, family, whatever it is, whatever you label you put on it, it's owners who change it. It's owners who make it better. It's people who behave, even when they don't technically own it, they behave like they do. They invest they give, they go, they share. They do whatever needs to be done because this little piece of land they're on, whether it's a literal piece of land or it's a community group or it's a local church or a family or a school or a college or a workplace, they say, while I'm here, I'm going to own this. I'm going to invest into it. And that's what we're after. That's what any leader's after. That, that's what God's after, I believe. Now, the Lord will bless us uh, 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 and, you know, if you're a renter, you'll still go to heaven. But, but, but you know, Lord, the Lord is looking for an owner mentality. Yeah. Because God's an owner over our lives. And actually, he's looking for that in each one of us. My, my wife's amazing. She's really an incredible woman and a very, very generous heart. Naturally, just an incredible, generous heart. In the last ministry context we were in, she was employed to work 17 and a half hours a week. And she never saw 17 and a half hours. On average, every week, she worked double. So she was working time again for free. But yet, if you spoke to her, she would talk about the joy of contributing to that. Her last week of work, she did 47 hours in her last week. Why am I saying that? To to make you think my wife's amazing? No, to show you that's an owner mentality. No one asked her to do that. No one was requiring. In fact, everyone would have said, don't do that. Just chill out, you know, and move on. But actually, there's something within her won't let her do that because everywhere she goes, she wants to be an owner because it's owners who change the world. Yes? In my first church, I worked in a little village halfway between Wakefield and Barnsley. And uh, we, we were sort of pioneering planting in their sort of repurposing a little context. It was back in 1987 when I went there, a long time ago, and, uh, and it was right off the back of the mining strike. Some of you will remember that. There was a terrible year-long strike in the coal mining industry in this country, which, which crippled the industry and decimated communities. It was a really horrible time for the country. Whichever side of the political divide you stood on, it was pretty tough. So going into this situation was pretty nasty. The area had really been run down it was a bit shabby. It was all a little bit unloved. That's how I would describe it, unloved. But at that time, just after there, the government uh, went into a partnership with local councils to try and release council houses into ownership stock. And so they did deals with local councils. The local council in our area also did a deal with the coal uh, mining industry, uh, and they were able to release all of these houses that were rented into home ownership. So you could buy, in our area, at that time, a three-bedroom house with a garden at the front, garden at the back, for 25 grand. Wow. Who wants one? 
Okay, I'll have three of those, please. Thank you. Okay, in fact, I'll have a row. Let's just have a row. Amazing opportunity. Uh, to give you an idea, when Don and I moved into that village, we, we decided to buy it. This is our, our owner mentality. And we bought a three-bedroom semi with lovely rooms, lovely big rooms, a big garden at the back, big garden at the front for 14 grand. That's unbelievable, isn't it? You think I'm making that up? And that's not like in Charles Dickens' day. That's like in 1987. We bought the amazing opportunities. And so, as you can imagine, people started to buy. They jumped from renter to owner. And an amazing social transformation took place. I would love to say it was because we prayed and fasted and sought the Lord and the Holy Spirit swept through the village and changed everybody. But no, it was, it was just simply, uh, it, on the deed of the house, it went from renter to owner. Gardens started to get tidied. Old cars that had been left on the road were removed. New windows went in, new doors went in, roofs were getting repaired. People were actually uh, taking some pride in their community. And there was right before our eyes a social transformation that took place. And it was like a revelation to me. I saw the power of ownership in that experience. People went from renter, I'll just pay my rent, let my landlord look after everything, to owner, oh my goodness, I've got to start looking after everything. And ownership changes us. In, in 1776, Thomas Paine wrote a series of articles called The American Crisis at a time when America back then was trying to get independence from Britain, from the English. Imagine that. And, uh, and so, and so they, were, they, they were trying to escape the claws of the English. And, and he wrote these series of articles that were so inspirational that George Washington, who was then a general, who then became a, the first president, he used these to inspire the troops in battle. Listen to this one from his essay called Common Sense. He said this, Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the, most, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Look, look at that little phrase. I love this phrase. What we obtain too cheap. We esteem too lightly. See, that's an ownership mentality right there. I, I, I found that if we go cheap and nasty, it produces cheap and nasty in us. But if something truly costs us in the sense that we're stepping over into ownership, our mentality to that thing changes. My 16-year-old my daughter has bought her first phone, iPhone 6, and she bought it off her brother because he wanted an iPhone 7, so he, he, he can work, pay for his own stuff. Beth Ann, we, we, we buy our kids our first mobile phone at 12, and then every year, if it's up for renewal, we'll help them do that. So, so that, that's, the, that's the scheme we've had. Uh, and, and Beth Ann said, uh, Dad, I, I, I'd, I, I'd like to buy a new phone. So, so Simeon heard about this, and he said, okay, I'll sell you mine because I want a seven. And so the two of them went into a process of negotiation. It was amazing to watch. So a 16-year-old negotiating with a 20-year-old. And I'm thinking, Beth Ann's got to get, get a hiding here. But actually, she really held her own, and she ended up negotiating an amazing price for an iPhone 6. In fact, it was so good, I was tempted to undercut her and move into the negotiation to get one for myself. And uh, it was incredible. And Simeon, uh, you know, agreed. And so I said to them both, right, shake on it, because I, I want you to shake on this, and then, and then we'll sort the money out. And so they shook on. I said, now, Simeon, that's the deal done. Simeon then immediately went onto the internet and found out what iPhone 6s were selling for secondhand and realized his 16-year-old sister had done him. Uh, he got done. Now, I, I, I said, you ready? And so I, I transferred the money out of her account into his account. And, and, and now, I want to tell you, her attitude to that iPhone 6, it's like, it's like she has a baby in her arms. <laughs> she, she nurses it, you know, and never leaves it from her side. She's got it everywhere she goes. You know, if she goes anywhere, where's my phone? It's like, you know, it's like it's an essential part of her. Why? Because she has actually paid for it. It's not the phone that dad bought, and if it breaks, my dad will buy me another one, the bank of dad. No, no, 
I paid for this. And when you step across the line into ownership, it changes you about that thing. Whatever that thing is, it changes you. And that's what God's after. When we step over, something changes in us. And, and, and I think there are three dynamic ideas that change in us when we become owners. And I want to share them with you really quickly. Here's the first one. Ownership settles cause over cost. So, so in the story of Shema, look at this really carefully. Now, we know it all ends happily for him. But theoretically, he steps into that field and he is literally putting his life on the line. Now, at the end of the day, God rescues him and does, does an amazing job, but, but Shema makes this realization. The cause of this field and defending it is worth my life. Amazing idea. Now, we read the Bible. It's like a little bit of a fairy tale to us thousands of years later, but this is a real story about a real man in a real field and a real fight. And here's what he's saying. The field is worth the cost. You see, when you become an owner, cause always drives cost, always. That, that actually you will find a way, can I use the expression, to pay for it because you're an owner of it. People will stretch themselves to buy that house. They will stretch themselves to get that car. They will stretch themselves to get that iPhone 6 from their brother. They will do whatever they need to do. Why? Because they've become owners of this thing. Uh, and therefore, the cost uh, somehow becomes subservient to the cause. Yes? On, on the screen for you is Sir Mo. Sir Mo. Sir Mo Farah got his knighthood just in the last week or two. Uh, can you all do the Mo for me? Uh, no, not very, not very good. Okay, the, f the first service weren't very good at it either. Um, so, so, but actually, the, the, Mo, the Mo became famous when, when, of course, Mo Farah won double Olympic gold in 2012, those incredible Olympics. But his stats are absolutely amazing. In 2012, he did the 5,000 and 10,000 uh, Olympic gold. He, he won gold in the 5 and the 10. Next year, uh, in 2013, he won the 5 and the 10 gold in the World Championship. 2015, he won again the 5 and the 10 gold in the World Championship. 2016, he won the 5 and the 10 gold in the Olympic Games. He did a quadruple double. You're a hard crowd to impress, aren't you? I can see from your athletic ability, you're, you're used to this. Um, that's incredible, isn't it? And in fact, he won five European goals. He's also won a couple of Commonwealth goals. He is the most decorated British athlete in modern uh, athletics that we've ever had. Incredible, incredible uh, runner, if you know anything about him. But let me just give you a little bit of his schedule. So, so what put him on the podium? Here's his schedule. You ready? Going to love this as you head to lunch. Um, Monday, a.m., 10-mile recovery run at six minutes per mile pace. That's running, not in the car. Okay. Okay. Um, then in the evening, six-mile recovery run. Tuesday, four-mile warm-up run. Eight to 12-mile tempo run anywhere from 4.40 to five minutes per mile. Incredible. Then a three-mile cool-down run. Then at noon that day, he does strength and conditioning session for one hour. And then in the evening, he does a six-mile recovery run. <laughs> you feeling tired? <laughs> Wednesday, a.m., 12-mile run followed by a massage. We'll give him that, right? Okay, he, he's earned the massage. And then in the evening, a five-mile recovery run. Thursday, 11-mile run. Thursday evening, a five-mile recovery run. Friday, four-mile warm-up jog. I can't imagine Mo Farah jogging anywhere, but there we are. Followed by 10 by 200-meter interval runs with a 29-second gap in between. Then he does the 10 by 200 interval runs again up a hill with 29 seconds in between, followed by a four-mile cool-down run. <laughs> Saturday, when we're all shopping or snoozing, 11-mile run in the morning, followed by a massage, and then a six-mile recovery run in the evening. Sunday, when we're all worshiping here, 
22 to 27 mile run, no slower than marathon pace, which for him is about five minutes 40 per minute. So he does a total of 126 to 135 miles a week. Or he did, he did do before sort of formally retiring, stepping back in order to get those shiny bits of gold. See, Mo Farah was able to stand on the podium because cause was greater than cost. On the days he wanted to stay in bed, he got up. On the days when he was cold, he got out. On the days when he wasn't feeling like it, he did it. Why? Because cause, cause is driving him. He's an owner. He's grabbed this thing. He believes in this thing. Now listen, listen, he's only running for gold medals. In a hundred years' time, no one will remember Mo Farah unless they dig it up in the record books. Those gold medals will have, will have turned to dust or be turning to dust. Yes? The, the, there's that sense. They're just gold medals. And yet, and yet the cause is so great within him that it causes him to pay a really phenomenal, exhausting cost. Wow. Do you know, you're here today because God's an owner. Jesus loves you so much that he considered cause over cost. The cause of saving the world is a noble and great one, but the cost of saving the world was catastrophic for God. And the only way that God could save the world was sending Jesus into the world and hanging on the cross for each one of us. When we look at the cross, we'll see many different things and learn many different things. But one of the things we see about the cross is that God considered cause over cost. You're here today because God's an owner. And having experienced the power of his ownership, he's looking for that mentality in return. He wants for me and you to be men and women that believe in something so powerfully that we're prepared to put the cause over the cost. Yes? Let me ask you the question, what, what are you prepared to put cause over cost for? I, I'm so encouraged and thrilled to hear about the contribution to your, to your uh, pledge scheme and your vision offering. That's amazing. Over uh, 400,000 pounds in the last couple of weeks. That's been absolutely stunning. That is amazing. I mean, I just broke out in spontaneous applause, even though it's the second time I've heard it, uh, and I was the only one clapping. I, it's incredible. I know you sort of got used to that, but that's amazing. That people in this room believe in the future of this church so much that they are literally prepared to put themselves out. Now, it's one thing, of course, signing the pledge. The challenge is owning the pledge. That's the challenge, isn't it? We've got to deliver. But, you know, it's an amazing step forward. So well done. But the Lord calls, calls us to be owners. And when we own, we're prepared to put cause over cost. Here's, here's, here's the idea I want you to grab. Ownership changes everything. And when you become an owner of CLM, CLM changes because you change. When you become an owner of your work, it changes because you've changed. When you become an owner of your family, it changes because you've changed. When you become an owner of your community, it changes because you've changed. Now, it may not actually change, change, literally, in that moment, but it will change how you view it because you've changed. Does that make sense? Okay, ownership changes everything. Here's the second thing I want you to see really quickly. Ownership shifts us from a consumer to a contributor. Look at this. Shema stood in the field and fought. He didn't just stand there and look on. He got his sword out in the context of his day, and he fought for this thing. He literally put himself into it. He contributed something to this cause. Now, ultimately, God stepped in and did what only God can do, but, but God responds to the contribution of Shema. And I love that, that, that actually God himself is a contributor, and I believe one of the things he does respond to is a spirit of contribution, a spirit of generosity, a spirit that says, I will put something into this. And I believe when we're prepared to do that, I think we get God's attention. I think he steps up. I think he wants to put something in because we've put something in. Now, he can put something in when we put nothing in. But when I step up, he steps up because he loves the contributor. He loves that attitude. He loves us no matter what, but he loves the attitude of the contributor. The young woman on your screen 
is Becky Murray. In fact, her and her husband lead an AOG church just up the road or down the road uh, in New Toxeter, Renew Church, fantastic couple. I first met Becky in Rotherham uh, when I went there to be the senior leader. She was a young teenager with a bit of a heart and passion for mission. And we sent mission teams all over the world from our church. And I remember Becky going on her first official missions trip to Sicily with us. And God did something in her heart. And, and from there, she's gone from strength to strength. In fact, a few weeks ago, I had the joy of preaching at their missions conference. How cool is that? You know, you invest into someone, and then later, years later, they invite you back to preach for them in their missions conference. It was just an amazing, amazing moment. And, and Becky was, was on a missions trip. And she met a nine-year-old girl. A little nine-year-old girl didn't have any shoes. And so being a good Christian, Becky just reached out, took her down to the market, and bought her some shoes. Simple. Job done. Game over. But that night, the, the little girl uh, found where Becky was staying and made her way to the hotel. And she went to Becky and she said, you bought me shoes. What can I give to you? Now, that sounds great until you find out what she meant. She, she was offering her body to Becky, right, to abuse, to take sexual advantage of. And at first, Becky didn't get it. You know, she was like us in the room, the, the lovely, gorgeous Christian community goes, oh, that's lovely. She wants to give something back. And so that's how Becky responded. Oh, she wants to give something. But no, no, the child wasn't offering, you know, to, to serve the kingdom of God. The child was offering to be a, a sex slave for the night to this couple. Nine, which, which points to the idea she's probably had to do this before. And it, it was a moment of change for Becky. And Becky says this in her story, amazing. She says, once you see a need... You can't unsee it. Now, here's a, here's a woman already committed to mission, already doing amazing stuff, already doing pr probably most in, uh, more than many Christians are doing, yet she meets this nine-year-old girl, something happens within her, and at that moment, she becomes an owner. Right. And out of that incredible, catastrophic experience is birthed today, an amazing children's home and church called Keene's Church. That's it there. Uh, they, they look after 150 children a day. They feed them, educate them. There's a church that's been planted there. They're bringing social transformation to that whole community. They literally have seen the whole of that region impacted by the power of the gospel. Why? Because a young woman became an owner. It moved from, it moved from, I can't get back on the plane with my passport to say I had an amazing missions trip. It went from that to, I've got to do something. She saw something that changed her. Let me ask you a question. What do you see? Is there something you see you're so passionate about, you're prepared to do whatever it takes? Do you see what we see here in CLM? Do you see what the leaders see? Do you see what God wants to do here in Coventry? Can you see it? Because the minute you see that, you can't unsee it. The minute we see the need, we can't unsee the need. We can ignore it, but we can't unsee it. And the thing about owners is they see stuff. Shammah saw the field. He saw the Philistines coming. He saw everybody running, and he stood. He saw something that he couldn't unsee. What do you see? Because it's what you see will determine what you own and what you're prepared to do with the life that God has given you. Because ownership changes everything. And ownership that Becky and Matthew have taken has literally changed thousands of lives. Isn't that amazing? Here's the last we thought we're going to finish. Ownership, lastly, sees long-term over short-term. See, I, I, I just have a theory that is Shema is fighting in that field. I can't prove this, but as he's fighting in that field, he's not just fighting for that moment. He's fighting for the generations to come. That's a very Jewish idea. It's a very Hebraic idea that actually we're multi-generational people. We're not just thinking about today. We're thinking about tomorrow and the day after that. The Bible says that the good person stores up an inheritance for his children's children. We're living in a society today where most people are just struggling to survive today. Never mind think about their kids and their kids' kids. 
But imagine what our world would look like if you and I had that sort of mentality. I think that's Shema's mentality because in generations to come, there would be Israelites living on that field. And they get to live there because he fought for it. They benefit from his investment because that's what happens with owners. Owners invest into something and even if they don't get the direct benefit out of it themselves, someone will benefit from it. That's a kingdom of God mentality. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. It's the idea that God blesses me when I invest, but sometimes I don't get back everything I've invested directly to me, but someone will get the investment. Someone will be blessed by that. Does that make sense? Dawn and I celebrated our 29th wedding anniversary in the summer in Barcelona before it declared independence. Barcelona, what an amazing city. If you've never been, put it on your bucket list and go. It's gorgeous. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. And this is the Sagrada. So it's a, it's a church building, really. It's a bit of a monstrosity. I mean, some people will look at the Sagrada and sort of love it and think, wow, that's a piece of architectural magnificence. And then other people will look at the Sagrada and think someone was on drugs when they designed that. It seems to be all over the place. It seems to be all hobbled together. It's a really, it's the weirdest building I've ever seen in my life. It's magnificent and it's stunning, but it's weird. It's totally weird. And it was designed by a guy called Gaudi. And in fact, Gaudi died in 1926. Now, here's some stats I found out about the Sagrada, which are, are stunning. Uh, they, they started building it in 1882. And they will finish building it, at least this is the plan, in 2026. Now, 2026 is the 100th anniversary of Gaudi's death. So they're hoping to complete the building, put the last gargoyle on the top of the last turret, 2026. That's 144 years. Now, here's, here's the amazing thing, which, which struck me as I heard these stats, is that when the first builder put the first brick or foundation stone in place, they knew, they knew they would never see it finished. But they built it anyway. See, that's an owner. That's an owner mentality. The owner mentality says, why should I? Or the, the renter mentality, the squatter mentality says, why should I build it when I won't get any benefit from it? But the owner says, build it anyway. Someone will benefit from it. Right. Come on, what's in it for me? I hear people say all the time, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Sometimes there's nothing in it for you. Can I just say that? We just need to grow up. Like seriously, sometimes as a dad, there's nothing in it for you in the short term. Sometimes a husband, there's nothing in it for you. Sometimes as a leader, there's nothing in it for you immediately. That you're, but you continue to invest. Why? Because you believe in the field. And you believe eventually this is going to harvest, hopefully for us, but if not for us, for somebody else. It's going to harvest for somebody. I love this. The Lord brought a great victory about, you know, your stand gives God an opportunity to be supernatural. When you stand for your family, you give God the chance to do a supernatural thing for your family. When you stand for your community, you're inviting the supernatural into that community. When you stand for CLM, you're inviting the supernatural into CLM, because God responds to the stand. He responds to that ownership. I hope you recognize that picture. Would the band want to join me? We're, all, we're, we're done, really. This is my last bet. I'm landing it now. Don't worry. I hope you recognize that picture. If you don't, where have you been? No, no. If you don't, that picture is in the foyer of your building here. So out the door, turn left, and it's the wall just before the door. Have a wee look at it. It's amazing. And it has a beautiful sort of picture and inscription. And then you have this stone that was taken from the first building that was put here. And I love what it says here. This stone was led to the glory of God on behalf of the assembly. 3rd July or 3 July, 19, 1937, 80 years ago. The amazing thing about that for me as someone who loves history is that this first building that we now call CLM was built in what historians call the devil's decade. Decade of emotional, uh, uh, social and financial polarity and, 
and deprivation in Britain. Uh, we talked about Food Bank earlier on. My goodness, what a chance to be an owner there. Step up and own a little bit and feed someone who's hungry. What an amazing thing. 100,000 people have been fed in seven years. In the 1930s, people were queued round the blocks to get some soup, to get a bit of bread. The soup kitchens literally kept families alive. The social deprivation was so great in the 30s and, of course, leading to a catastrophic world war in 1939. Here's the amazing thought that I had in the midst of that catastrophe socially and economically. A group of Christians bought a, bought a field, sacrificed their own money, and said, we'll take a stand. I'm not sure if they could imagine what I'm looking at now, back then. Probably not. But I'm looking at a crowd of people, and there was a big crowd of people in the first service, because a bunch of people, and I'm not sure how many, in the midst of social deprivation, a spiritual challenge, and economic hardship, said, let's buy the field. Let's take a stand. and see what God does. And God showed up. And you're here today in part because they took a stand. Do you know, and I, I was amazed to hear from Martin and Esther in the, the 12 months leading up to your last vision offering a couple of weeks ago, this church paid off almost half a million pound from its mortgage. Come on. See? Listen, I'm a dad, I've, and Don and I have made it our ambition. Here's our ambition. We will not pass on debt to our kids. My children will not get debt from me. We've set it up. Whatever happens, they're not going to get debt. They're going to get investment. I'm not ready to die yet, but they're going to get some investment. Do you understand? One of the worst things I could do as a dad amongst the many things I could hand on to my children would be to hand them on my debt to pay off your mortgage early, to take these sorts of stands. It's not just economic good sense today. It's about alleviating a burden for tomorrow. It's about saying to the generation to come, look, we give you this, just like they did. We give you this. Here it is. You can have it. Now run with it and do something amazing with it. Years later, people would build on that piece of land that Shema fought for and they would thank that man for getting his sword out and fighting Do you know I've discovered ownership changes everything and, and I want to say to you as a local community it's amazing to see what God's doing among you but I, he wants to do even more among you and I know you're sort of catching your breath John we've just had the offering will you give us a break but actually actually do you know that there's something amazing that God does amongst people? You see, you've taken a stand in making the pledge. You've taken a stand in stepping forward. You've taken a stand by some of you financially, physically serving. And so God goes, okay, you've stood. I'll step into this. Let me do something for you that is supernatural, financially supernatural. And I want to encourage you to expect financial supernatural breakthrough even upon this community in the next 12 months. Why? Because you've taken a stand. Shema still had to fight. She still have to give. It's not abracadabra. We still have to do it. But when we do it, the Bible says that God won a great victory for Shema that day. Imagine what it might look like in 10, 20 years' time. Imagine what people could be saying about you in 50 years' time. Thanking you for being a Shema and stepping up for your community, stepping up for your church, and stepping up for your lives. Why don't you stand with me? You've been amazing. Thank you for your generosity and listening. I don't know what your field looks like, but I can tell you this. The way that we transform a field is by taking ownership of it. Whatever that is for you. I mean, provided it's moral and legal, we're not talking about weird stuff here. We're talking about kingdom of God stuff. We're talking about your life, your family, your community, this church. Owners change things. And ownership changes everything. If you become an owner of CLM, CLM changes for you. 
You become an owner of that street you live in. Even though the street is not what you want it to be, it will change for you. You become an owner of your workplace, even though at the moment it feels like the job from hell for you, it will change. I felt it strongly. I said prophetically. Some of you are renters in this house. The Lord would say to you, if you live as an owner in your rented property, he will give you land of your own. He will give you a home of your own. <coughs> Invite him in. Yes. Well, John, you can't see the house. Invite him in. Yes. Yeah. Invite him into the moment and allow him to do something supernatural. Because if you take your stand, God can do the supernatural. Holy Spirit, thank you for this wonderful community. Thank you for the privilege of being part of the journey of this amazing church. 80 years and counting. We're so grateful for people who in the 30s bought a field, took a stand, laid down their lives. Some of them sacrificed profoundly to put that first little stone in the ground. And we're here today because of that. Lord, we want to believe that our stones in the ground today will create a harvest of supernatural proportions for this city. That, Lord, we will be part of an amazing sweep of the Holy Spirit through the city, through our region. That, Lord, thousands upon thousands of people will be impacted by the power of the gospel, not only today, but in the years to come because we have taken a stand as a Christian community, because we've decided to own this place. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray, may the spirit of ownership come upon us for our own lives. May the spirit of ownership come on us for our family. May the spirit of ownership come on us for the street that we live in. May the spirit of ownership come on us for the job that we work in. And may the spirit of ownership come upon us for this Christian community. That like Shema, we will take our stand. And like Shema, you will do a great victory through us. You will do a great work through us. We will see supernatural breakthrough in us and through us and because of us. And so, Lord, we invite you, the great owner, the one who has literally demonstrated his ownership to us. We invite you into our world that, Lord, the power and spirit of ownership will transform us and in turn transform the world we live in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.